Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt, and, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here for uh, one of our Writers Live programs. We're delighted to welcome Chris Corbett back to the Pratt. Um, besides being a great guy and a wonderful writer, Chris is a PR machine extraordinaire. And I guess that's why all of you are here. <laughs> Every author who wants to get his book into the hands of readers really needs to take lessons from uh, Chris's uh, playbook because he really is an expert. And, and I've met lots and lots of authors, and he's the best. So. And to um, do the official introduction for Chris, um, we're also pleased to welcome back Bill Zorzi, and Bill's going to tell us about Chris. Good evening. I'm uh, honored to be here. I'm Bill Zorzi. I'm here to uh, introduce the main event, Mr. Corbett, author of The Poker Bride, the first Chinese in the Wild West, right here. If you haven't picked up a copy, you should. I'm sure he'd be glad to sign it afterwards. Uh, I'm here as sort of the warm-up back, the greeter, if you will, uh, kind of uh, the Joe Lewis to his Wayne Newton. In the spirit of full disclosure, I, I have to tell you that Mr. Corbett is a, uh, a friend of mine. I, I, I guess it uh, borders on being a close friend of mine. But uh, <laughs> despite that, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here really to praise him or to bury him. Um, but I, I will tell you a few things about him and uh, offer a few thoughts that others have offered on the, uh, the poker bride. I've recognized many of you out there. Uh, so I'm sure you, you are also friends of Mr. Corbett's. Um, I will tell you that uh, for those of you who don't know him, uh, he lives in Baltimore, but he was born and raised in the wilds of Maine. Um, he's a graduate of Northwestern University, spent time in Ireland, the land of his forebears. He worked as a reporter and editor for the Associated Press. And uh, after leaving the AP, he uh, applied the writer's trade as a freelance publishing in national outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. Um, he's currently a professor of the practice, as he says, of journalism at the University of Baltimore, I mean, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, he also writes a monthly column called The, the Back Page uh, for Baltimore's uh, Style Magazine, which is one of accolades and occasionally the scorn of the thin-skinned. Um, <laughs> He can be uh, a very amusing fellow. The Poker Bride is his third book. His first was a, a comic novel, sort of an ode to his, uh, his roots, called Vacation Land, published in 86. His next, published in 2004, was uh, an entertaining history called Orphans Preferred, The Twisted Truth and Lasting Legend of the Pony Express, which drew high praise and enjoyed several printings. In fact, the publisher is about to release, or may have already released, another edition to coincide with the 150th anniversary of the Pony Express on April 3rd. His most recent is The Poker Bride, as, which is why we're here. He has written, I think, a very good book. Um, but don't take my word for it. It, it has been well-received. Uh, it has it got a star review, starred review in the Library Journal and has received favorable reviews uh, among other publications in the Wall Street Journal and, and on Sunday in the Times Book Review. Um, in The Sun, recently, Michael Sregal, the uh, Sun's movie critic, wrote, Imagine McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the treasure of the Sierra Madre, and Deadwood, hand-stitched together and given a novel slant as a mini-epic of Chinese immigrant life. That suggests the polyglot vitality of Baltimore writer Christopher Corbett's new nonfiction book, The po Poker Bride. With the poker bride, he, he ended that review. Corbett cement, cements, his, yeah, cements his claim as an ace surveyor of America's borderland of fable. Uh, David Simon, who was uh, known to many of us, author of Homicide, The Corner, and creator of HBO's The Wire, says, with the poker bride, Christopher Corbett has brought home a tale delicate and sad and not a little bit heroic. And in doing, doing so, he has rec rescued from oblivion an extraordinary chapter of the immigrant experience in America. With this work and his earlier reconsideration of the Pony Express, Orphans Preferred, Corbett has established himself as a fresh and thoughtful voice in the historical realm of the American West. 
And lastly, I'll just read this one from Douglas Brinkley, who is a well-known historian, uh, whose most recent book was uh, The Wilderness Warrior, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America. He wrote, there is no alkali dust in these pages. The Poker Bride is a gorgeously written and brilliantly researched saga of America during the mad flush of its biggest gold rush. Christopher Corbett's genius is to anchor his larger story of Chinese immigration around a poor concubine named Polly, a tremendous achievement. Uh, that's all very high praise from writers who actually know of what they speak. So with uh, no further ado, it's my privilege to introduce uh, Christopher Corbett. I, I fear that many of you are here this evening because of the evils of social networking and have already blocked my email. I, I, I know that for a fact because mail is coming back. I, I want to thank the Enoch Pratt Free Library for uh, always having me over, and, uh, and I want to thank Judy Cooper in particular, and uh, uh, a special thanks to my former student and good friend, Grant Wong, for his support and advice over a long time. So, uh, and thank you for coming to see me. I, I thought that what I might do is to tell you a little bit about how I found this story, or how I got this story, as they used to say in the newspaper business. I, I found the Chinese in the Old West, or perhaps I should say, I stumbled on the Chinese in the Old West before I actually found the poker bride, Polly Bemis. I was doing research for my last book, Orphans Preferred, which is a history of the Pony Express, or a story about how the Pony Express got to be a story. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Nevada mining towns in central Nevada. And these are fabulous remnants of the boom times. Uh, and one of my favorite is, is a town called Eureka. There's a near lunar landscape there and uh, absolutely nothing to do. So the state of Nevada cheerfully markets this as the loneliest road in America. And, and I, I used to stay in Eureka a fair bit. And in the evening, as there's not anything to do in Eureka, I would walk in the cemetery because there is someone from everywhere in the world buried in the cemetery in Eureka, Nevada, because people came from everywhere to get rich. And some got rich, and some did not, and some died, and some just went home. And uh, I like to read the headstones there. Um, I found them fascinating. Uh, I, I, I once saw a headstone in, the, in a cemetery in Nevada that the, the name on the headstone was for, uh, to a Jewish guy, like Abraham Zimmerman, and it had a Star of David, but then underneath it it said, for his friends, or in the ancient order of Hibernians. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, Bret Hart, the great chronicler of the West, would have gotten a whole story out of that. So one of the things I noticed in Eureka on my, on my rounds in the cemetery was that there was no Chinese cemetery. And I knew, though I knew very little, that there had been Chinese everywhere. The ghosts of the Chinese haunt the American West. They are uh, a constant reminder. And, uh, and in the boom days, there was nary a place in, in the West from California to Colorado and from Montana to the uh, to. Uh, Arizona, where there weren't Chinese people. So I asked this old lady in the town where the Chinese cemetery was, and she said, uh, uh, well, it's up on the hill on the outside of town, but there's, there's nobody there anymore because the bone collectors came for them and took them all back to China. And I had never heard that the Chinese repatriated their dead. And so I thought that was such a, an, an amazing thing that I became curious about the Chinese in the West, and that sort of led me to Polly Bemis, the poker bride. 
Polly Bemis was a real person. She was not a character in a story by Bret Hart, and she lived until 1933, although we primarily know about her from the end of her life rather than from the beginning of her life. For a long time in the West, uh, Chinese benevolent associations would run notices in the newspapers, and I've seen many of these asking people to let them know if they were aware of the remains of any deceased Chinese people so they could be sent back to China. The poet Joaquin Miller, who was once a popular and famous poet in the West, called this the caravan of the dead. And people would travel about the countryside looking for uh, dead Chinese people. You, you, you can't travel in the American West without being constantly aware that the Chinese were there. Uh, and oftentimes those memories are very grim and, and very sad. Uh, I, I think in particular there's a town called Pierce City in Idaho where there were f five Chinese lynched one day. And the state of Idaho, for odd reasons, maintains a historic marker by the side of the road, lest anyone forget that. But it's a, it's a very strange and eerie thing. And I, I was talking to a woman I know who's Chinese-American journalist, and she said she thought that the memory of the Chinese in the West outside of California was very spooky. There was something haunting about that. And I, I, would, I would agree with that. If you go to Pierce City today, there's no one buried in the Chinese cemetery. There are just the indentations in the ground of where the Chinese were, and they've all gone back to China. I heard about Polly Bemis after I heard about the bone collectors, and it was pretty obvious, although her pedigree as a poker bride, a girl literally won in a poker game, was much disputed in Idaho. Uh, some people said she was won in a poker game, and some people said she wasn't won in a poker game. But then in the end, uh, it didn't really matter whether she was won in a poker game or not. Uh, her story is set along what the historian Bernard DeVoto calls the borderland of fable, that place where fact and fancy get mixed up. We do know a few things about Polly Bemis. We don't know her real name. She was illiterate. She couldn't read or write. She couldn't read or write Chinese. Uh, but she survived in the American West from 1872 to 1933. She lived to be 80 years old. She was a living curiosity by that time, a survivor of a world that had vanished and was mysterious. And to talk about her and to talk about the Chinese in the Old West, I think some dates are probably useful. The, the first date that I think is useful for us, and I'm assuming that you know as little about this as I did when I began to look at it. In 1829, a wily Scottish trader and a Yankee ship's captain came into the port of Boston with a ship carrying with them the two most famous Chinese of the 19th century. They were the Siamese twins, Chang and Eng, and they were actually ethnically Chinese. And for decades, Americans, if they saw a Chinese person, they saw Chang and Eng in what we would consider a freak show. And as freaks, the Chinese, like Chang and Eng, were widely accepted as curiosities. People would pay a day's wages to, and stand in line for hours to see a Chinese person. Chinese people were that unusual, that rare. And as curiosities, Americans were comfortable with the Chinese. But then, um, about 20 years after Chang and Eng got off that ship in Boston, James Marshall picked up a piece of gold about half the size of a pea on the American River near Sacramento and, and launched what, what the historian J.S. Holliday called the world rushing in. And that changed the entire fabric of the country. When gold was found on the Pacific Slope, there were only 290 white men, which is how they counted people then, living in what we would consider California. And 12 years later, there were half a million white men and women living in what was then the state of California, which is an extraordinary kind of event. And I think it's interesting to note that 
When gold was discovered in California, the word of that reached Hong Kong before it reached Boston, which is amazing. There were trade routes across the Pacific, and the Chinese wasted no time in getting to California. Uh, you could sail across the Pacific Ocean, and this is under sail, not a steamship, in 40, 45 days. Good time if, if the wind was good. And so the Chinese were among the first to arrive on the Pacific Slope, and they called California Gumsan, or Golden Mountain, for they were hoping to make a little money and go home and live happily. They were not planning on staying. They also called themselves sojourners. Now, a curious thing about the Chinese in the West was that initially people were glad to see them. They were unusual. They looked different than everyone else, but they did not threaten the population in any sort of way. They were incredibly useful. They performed all sorts of tasks and services. It was only with the passage of time that uh, the sort of unfortunate nativism and racism in the country by the 1870s began to work on what we would call the Chinese must go movement. And, uh, and that was where there was friction after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Most early Chinese immigrants in California were men. They were from the Pearl River Delta. They were peasants. They came from the land near Hong Kong and they would have been uh, illiterate. They would have been mostly used to doing manual labor, and they weren't really uh, planning on staying in the United States very long. They called themselves parts of bachelor societies. They, they didn't bring their wives, they didn't bring their girlfriends, and uh, they were planning to go home as soon as possible. And a lot of Americans were glad to hear that, too. Uh, and uh, that's also a sort of sad part of that legacy. Uh, from California, they would scatter out into the countryside, especially after the railroad was completed, looking for work. And they would do anything, and they would do it cheaper, and they would do it better than any competitor. And that also contributed to their problems. Uh, you might be interested to know that from the very earliest days in, in the, of the gold rush, there were Chinese restaurants, and, and Chinese food was immediately popular, or something resembling Chinese food was immediately popular. With the Bachelor Society came female companionship, prostitutes imported from uh, China to, as companions, and uh, the phrase from the Cantonese was the hundred man's wife, and uh, that pretty much sums it up. This was a world that was brutal and violent and deadly and a world of disease and uh, suicide. And this was the world that Polly Bemis, the poker bride, survived. She is the thread of this little story. Uh, Mark Twain says someplace or other that we ought not talk about mankind, that we should talk about a man. Put a human face on an experience. And Polly Bemis puts a human face on an experience that we don't know a lot about. Even the Library of Congress, uh, writing about the 19th century West, lamented a few years ago uh, the paucity of uh, first-person accounts of the Chinese experience. And, and I think that's very true. Polly Bemis entered the American West on the back of a saddle horse in the summer of 1872. She came into San Francisco uh, on a ship from China, and then she came up to Portland on a steamer, and then she went inland to the rough and tumble boom town of Lewiston, Idaho, on the Snake River, and from there she was packed into the back country on a saddle horse. Someone had bought her. She would tell an interviewer when she was a very old lady, my family sold me in a famine. They were starving. And she thought this was amusing, that she had once been worth a lot of money because she was just a little old lady uh, who was no taller than a broom, one person who met her said. And uh, so she was probably sold, if you're curious, for about $2,500 which would have been a lot of money then if you consider that the average American laborer at that time would have made $10 in a week. Uh, 
the celebrated newspaper heiress, who is part of this story, uh, Sissy Patterson, met her, and she is one of the people who tells us the story of Polly and the story of the Chinese in the West, and that is part of this story, too. Um, she interviewed her, and a number of other people interviewed her at the end of her life, and they provide us with some glimpses of what her life must have been like. But we know about her life mostly from the end of her life. So uh, I, I want to just read a couple of short passages from, from the book um, that I, I think might give you some idea of the, this world. This is a description of San Francisco at the, at the height of the boom. This was the world that Polly Bemis would have come to. San Francisco's Chinatown, where most Chinese who arrived after the gold rush congregated if they did not head immediately for the mining country, was a nine-block labyrinth, a poorly lit maze of alleys and cellars brimming with life, good and bad, a world that seemed to outsiders both dazzling and depraved. Overwrought eyewitnesses, none of whom were Chinese, described the district chiefly as a realm of sin, a sore of vice and corruption. For a girl like Polly Bemis sold into slavery in China, it would have been the first stop in this strange and barbarous new country, and likely the last if she was unlucky. San Francisco's old Chinatown was symbolic of the Far East, one popular chronicler, Alexander McLeod, observed. Its tales of mystery, intrigue, plots, and counterplots are legion. McLeod, whose highly romantic pigtails and gold dust celebrated the intrigue of the place, found Chinatown a picturesque stage for human drama, smuggling, blackmailing, and every high adventure. It was also indisputably, McLeod pointed out, the gateway through which poured a strange, mysterious yellow horde direct from the Orient during the gold rush days, and it was also the end of the rainbow for thousands of Chinese Americans. Benjamin Lloyd, who was the liveliest chronicler of Chinatown, described the quarter as depravity itself. Mantled in dismal gloom, it was filled with opium dens, gambling parlors. Lloyd guessed there were at least 150 gambling parlors. Brothels. It was populated by slave girls, terrifying professional assassins called hatchet men, and Chinese gangsters whom whites referred to as highbinders. The denizens of Chinatown, especially at night, were otherworldly. Were it not for the sounds of that life that strike the ear, Lloyd wrote, after a midnight stroll, the imagination could easily transform these moving figures into the phantom host that watches and waits about the portals of hell. And, they, and the smoke and vapor from here rise into the smoke and torment that ascends forever and ever from the fervid fires of that baleful region. So he didn't think too much of Chinatown. <laughs> Almost all accounts of the Chinese in the 19th century West, I, I point this out to you, are written by people who aren't Chinese. I would keep that in mind when you go poking into these matters. It's, uh, it's an interesting facet of, the, of this kind of story. You, you do not have Chinese people talking about their experience. You have only non-Chinese. And some of those people could be enormously sympathetic and enormously kind. I, I won't read a lot more to you, but I want to tell you very briefly that the great champion of the Chinese in the 19th century West, when no one spoke on behalf of the Chinese, was Mark Twain. And he wrote in Roughing It, which is a funny book, in Nevada, they say there's two great books to have in the home, the Bible and Roughing It. Uh, he wrote in Roughing It of the Chinese, and he's telling you funny stories about his travels in the West, and the reader is laughing at these stories, and then suddenly out of nowhere, bang, he stops the action, and he says to the reader, but I saw the Chinese in the West, and what was done to them we should be ashamed of. Now, uh, if you only had to have one person stand in your corner, you could do worse than Mark Twain. So, um, 
Polly Bemis is remembered because people knew her and people remembered her. And I, I just want to read you a short bit. There was a celebrated character in Idaho, long dead, named Robert Gresham Bailey. Mr. Bailey was uh, the last of the, uh, the printer's devils, the guys who worked for newspapers in the 19th century. And he, he fancied himself an historian. And he wrote everything down. And uh, he, uh, he, he knew the poker bride. And I, I want you to hear his account of the day he met her. Uh, this is uh, chapter 7 from The Poker Bride, from the chapter Fond of Playing Cards. And it begins with this epigraph from Bret Hart. Life was at best an uncertain game, and he recognized the usual percentage in favor of the dealer. In 1901, Robert Gresham Bailey, an itinerant printer bent on adventure who'd come to what little remained of the Wild West, hired a prospector, packer, cook, miner, guide, horse wrangler, that was one job, uh, to take him into the still remote interior of Idaho. There were few roads. Much of the area was accessible only on horseback, and Bailey was advised not to go into the backcountry alone. The Nez Perce and Bannock Indians were long subdued, but a man could have an accident. The old-timers still carried a handgun with them for an emergency, chiefly to shoot themselves if they broke a leg. Bailey, who would later become a celebrated popular historian of Idaho, recalled that he first bought a half-wild horse from an entrepreneur named Billy Palmer, who specialized in spirited half-wild horses. <laughs> Mr. Palmer promised to uh, saddle the horse and uh, the first day. One dark brown horse especially attracted my attention, and this one I picked out as a first choice. The animal weighed about 900 pounds, but was so broad and compactly built that he looked 200 pounds less in weight. My judgment was good in one way. Later, the horse proved to be sure-footed and an exceptionally good packer. Just starting out was an adventure because the horse that Bailey had his guide and his guide, Joe Randall, were trying to pack was half-wild. First, it had to be blindfolded. Then, it had to be hobbled, its feet tied together. And then, to prevent it from kicking, they had to hog-tie the horse. Palmer agreed as part of the transaction to help them, and after, or they would have never left town, Mr. Bailey recalled later. The packing proved lively, drawing a crowd. When the rope was pulled from his feet and the blind removed, although a 200-pound pack was diamond-hitched securely to his back, the horse seemed to be on his feet in one jump, Bailey recalled, and then the fun began. We had a Wild West circus of our own. That cayuse executed every bucking jump known to the range, and I'm not sure that he had but a few of his own I had never seen before. After a few minutes of this, he quieted down, and for the rest of the day, gave no trouble. But every day, we had to go through that same performance. <laughs> Mr. Bailey and Joe Randall, his packer, later went up over the old Nez Perce Trail, the same route that had taken Lewis and Clark a century earlier, when they'd come through Idaho. The route took Bailey and his guide to Harpster and Elk City and over to the Oro Grande and the Big Creek section near the Buffalo Hump, and then down, down to the mouth of the South Fork of the Salmon River. A man could still have an adventure in the high country in those days, even without riding a half-wild horse, and Bailey and his packer had a few. One day, one of the string of pack horses carrying 50 pounds of dynamite lost its footing and rolled 200 yards down a mountainside. The horse was no worse for wear, though Bailey noted dryly in his memoir, it was a ticklish time for Randall and myself. <laughs> dynamite, when in that condition, on the back of a horse, explodes very easily. At Crooked Creek, the two travelers met the first human they'd seen in several weeks, a boatman who operated a ferry there. He took them and their belongings across the salmon, making several trips. When all was over, I asked him what I owed him, and his answer was nothing, Bailey said. 
The ferry operator refused repeatedly to take any payment for his services and invited the travelers to stay with them. We spent the evening at the house of our host, and I was regaled with stories of adventures from real life more lurid than is usually found in fiction. Midnight came all too soon. Bailey's host was Charlie Bemis, a well-known gambler who had long operated a saloon in nearby Warrens, a mining boomtown. Bemis entertained and fascinated his visitor, but Bemis's wife proved to be even more interesting to the historian. Bemis never forgot meeting her. Our host introduced us to his wife, and while I did not say anything, of course, I, I did a lot of thinking when I noticed the woman was Chinese. What a Chinese woman was doing living in a cabin with a gambler on the remote banks of the Salmon River was a question that would interest Bailey for the rest of his life. This would be the first of Bailey's many visits with Bemis and his wife Polly, and their stories of romance and adventure became part of Bailey's River of No Return, the Great Salmon River of Idaho. I, I should tell you maybe one story about Polly Bemis that you might find interesting. In 1923, Polly appears back in the world. No one has, she's been missing for 50 years, more or less, up in the mountains. And she comes down into the Idaho County seat of Grangeville on the back of a pack horse. Two prospectors named Pete Klinkhammer and Charlie Shep brought her down, packed her out like they'd packed her in 50 years earlier. And her arrival in Grangeville, the county seat, was it, uh, the newspaper could not refrain from repeatedly referring to this as Rip Van Winkle was a major event. It eclipsed everything else that happened in the news at the time because what had happened was a living reminder of the gold rush days and the boom times had come to town. And uh, Polly was grandly received. So m from 1923 until the last, the last decade of her life, we begin to acquire information about her. She's interviewed, she talks to people. She meets people. She goes places. She doesn't come out of the backcountry very often, but she was a kind of celebrated curiosity in the West, and uh, like a rare bird, not often sighted, but everybody knew about her. Most of the things, most of what we know about the Chinese in the 19th century West is based on what Americans are saying about the Chinese, whether it's Bret Hart, or Ambrose Bierce, or, or Mark Twain, or whether it's just the Oregonian. Um, you might find it interesting to know that the newspapers in the 19th century West always regarded the Chinese as figures of fun. They had been sent to amuse the citizens. And every story in the Oregonian is essentially what you'd call man bites dog, uh, because they, they, did, they regarded the Chinese as, as kind of curiosities and they didn't take them very seriously. Uh, if you think of the newspaper as the first draft of history, the newspaper accounts of the Chinese in the West are pretty, are pretty uh, unflattering. I'm, t I'm told that part of the problem also is, is that, that most of the people who made the trip initially were what we would consider peasants from the country, and they didn't write anything down. There's a few bits and pieces of things in here. I have a couple of pieces. There was a guy who... There were two guys, uh, Fat Hing and Huey Kin, and they, the family sold the, they sold the water buffalo and they pawned their mother's jewelry to buy a, a ticket to Golden Mountain. And off they went. And the trip scared the hell out of them. They were 100 days at sea. There was water, you know, un underneath the, in the vessel below decks. Uh, but they finally got to Golden Mountain, and, and we have some little snippets of those kinds of things. But we don't have a lot. We don't have we don't have a lot of a lot of that. There were a lot of overseas Chinese. You may know that there was a long practice of Chinese going overseas, but not to California until the gold rush. The the big difference in in the West is that the China. The Chinese experience in California is a great deal different than the Chinese experience in the rest of the country. There are still significant numbers of Chinese in California. Whereas today, you might find this curious, 
in the 1880s and the 1870s, there were more Chinese in rural Idaho than there were whites. But there are no Chinese to speak of in Idaho today. Like, it's quite amazing. They just literally, in the 1920s, I end the book with this, in the 1920s and 30s, the newspapers, if you remember, some of you old enough remember this, when they would find uh, Japanese soldiers on islands in the South Pacific long after the Second World War, long after the end of the gold rush, these old guys would come down out of the mountains in, in, to Lewiston, Idaho, and they'd have a picture of them on the railroad platform, and one benevolent association or another would buy them a ticket back to China. And these, some of these guys were in their 80s, and they'd been scratching at the ground up on the Clearwater River for 50 or 60 years, never made any money. So, you know, they, they were poor people. I mean, I'm not to wildly generalize about it, but they were. Polly was a celebrated cook, and she had kept a boarding house for a long time in the mining town of Warrens, which was at the end of the road, and she was a great baker of things. People knew her all over the place. She was a kind of a, one of the people, one of the more romantic accounts of Polly's life referred to her as the angel of the salmon because she used to take care of people when they were sick. And uh, so, yes, she was, a, a, she was an, a, incredibly useful. Her husband was a ferocious deadbeat. <laughs> Pe- people who knew him said, they said he never lifted anything heavier than a deck of cards. <laughs> and, uh, and he had, enough, this was the great mark in the West, for a per- he had soft hands. Man with soft hands, you keep your eye on a man with soft hands. So, but, so in the end of her life, uh, uh, Polly used to joke about, because she was very industrious, she would joke about what a deadbeat Charlie was. And Charlie liked to play cards, although at the end of his life, he, reduced, he was reduced to playing cribbage with passersby. This is why he didn't charge you if he took you across the river, because he was glad to have someone stop and play cards with him. Polly did all the work. This woman survived an experience that should have killed her, and it was just luck. She was never in a brothel. She never had that experience. She just got lucky. Somebody owned her. And when I tell you this, I, I'm, not, I'm not belittling this, but you have to understand that in those days, you could buy a girl in China for $10. There's a sex slave trade today in, this, in the world we live in, but you could buy a girl for $10. You'd sell her in Hong Kong, she'd be worth $200. In San Francisco, she'd be worth 1000 By the time you got her up to the Comstock, where Virginia City is, it should be worth $2,000. To put it very bluntly, somebody like that was like a racehorse. She was valuable. If she, hadn't, she wasn't ill, if she didn't have smallpox, if her face wasn't scarred, I mean, there's lots of accounts of this. So. But the Chinese were very happy to see babies born. And there are wonderful accounts of all these old guys and old miners who would walk great distances to see a Chinese baby. And they also were great believers in luck. So they bring the baby gifts and things like that. The, the, the life of the immigrant experience that we would be familiar with, with, many, um, with in many American cases was not the case. There, these were, especially in the remote areas, largely bachelor societies. And, and uh, people were... Um, they were like little um, commune, communes sort of things. A bunch of guys would mine a piece of ground. The Chinese were also greatly discouraged from mining ground. You often were allowed to mine a piece of ground only after white miners had mined a piece of ground. So they were, they were badgered and discriminated against in large and small ways. Before there was a government in China that was recognized in the United States, there were Chinese benevolent associations in San Francisco, and they were the mechanism that reached out to all the Chinese in the American West. Wherever you were from, it was a bit like belonging to a, 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 like a kind of club or something. Wherever you were from, you had a relationship with a Chinese benevolent association. And even the humblest coolie, and I use the word coolie this is explained in the book. Americans often use the word coolie incorrectly. The Chinese who came to the American West in this country were never coolies. They were, they were free men. They came on the, on the credit ticket system. Somebody would pay your passage, and you had to pay them back, but they were free men. They were not slaves. The larger, the larger matter was that uh, pe- these guys came into this country, 
and they were affiliated with something. And one of the guarantees of those benevolent associations was that no matter what happened to you, they'd get your body home. Uh, and Americans found this fascinating. Some of them thought it was not patriotic to want to be buried anywhere else than these here United States. What could possibly be wrong with a person that he wouldn't want to be buried here? After being bullied and discriminated against for 50 years, why would you want to be anywhere but in the land of the free and the home of the, you know? It's like, I'm not joking about that. Pe people actually, that was an argument that was made. That why, why would you want to be buried in, in another country? So, yeah, very, very common. So people who talked to her at the end of her life, she spoke, and I, I don't use this word derisively. I use the word as it is used by people who talk to her. They would often use the word pigeon, which is a kind of broken English, a kind of, the, she didn't study English anywhere. In fact, she says, she talked to people about, she wanted to learn to read and write, but Charlie was too lazy to teach her. And then Charlie figured, well, if she learned to read and write, we might have a problem here. So, but, but people who knew her said she was a great card player, and she could count. And she, she also knew the denominations of all money. So there's many funny stories about that. Somebody tried to buy some vegetables from her. They were traveling on the Salmon River. She would sell things to travelers. And they said they only had a $100 bill, thinking that she'd give them the vegetables for free. And she said, oh, I, I can break a $100 bill. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing about their relationship that's kind of unusual. Um, I, whether you believe or you don't believe Charlie won Polly in a poker game, you have to understand one thing that is absolutely irrefutable. She was worth something to someone, and that may horrify us and shock us, but the fact is, is in the Lifetime movie that plays in most Americans' heads, love is enough. But in the world that she lived in, love was not enough. Someone owned her. And so she got into Charlie's life somehow, and it, it could have been a poker game. Many people, serious people in Idaho, believe that story, and, and, uh, and I, I, that's, that's only part and parcel of it. Charlie and Polly didn't get married until the 1890s, and that was after she saved his life because he got shot. A disgruntled gambler shot him, and he would have died, and she saved his life, and then he married her. And people who knew them well said, he only married her because he was afraid that they'd send her back to China because the, the drum of the what was called the, the Exclusion Act or the Oriental Exclusion Act, there's a number of phrases for this. There, the, the Chinese were subjected to federal legislation uh, that essentially prohibited them from coming into the country, limited their staying here, made it difficult for them to come back into the country if they left. In order to talk about the Chinese in the 19th century West, you know, in order to talk about Polly, you need to look at a lot of things that are tangential to this. You need to read histories of the Chinese in the West, and there's reminders of the Chinese all over the place, whether it's in the Nevada archives in Reno, which are at the University of uh, Nevada, or in California, the California Historical Society. There are, there are repositories of information, and there's a lot of stuff written. A lot of it is in the 19th century. Some of it is in the 20th century, but um, there's sort of bits and pieces of this. It's, it's kind of, this kind of story is a little bit like putting together one of those thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles, if you remember doing that. We don't have all the pieces, but we have some of the pieces. And as I mentioned before, we have what other people said they saw about the Chinese. And many of those people, like Mr. Twain or Bret Hart, the short story writer, are very sympathetic. So there's an imperfection to this because you're limited to the fact that Polly didn't write a diary. She didn't write letters. Fortunately, people actually interviewed her and talked to her, and she had a lot of friends. But I have to work with what I have from the end of her life, not the beginning of her life. And also to tell this story, too, you need to talk about the things that were part of this world. And we know a lot about prostitution, which was endemic in the West at that time. We know a lot about gambling. The, the Chinese-American historian Iris Chang talks at great length. That's a wonderful book if you're curious about the Chinese in the West, the history of the Chinese in the West. She talks about that to the, for the Chinese, 
Gambling was as whiskey was to the Irish. And Mr. Twain said, I believe every third Chinaman has a lottery. That was his observation. That was a much, that was a very common word. I'll say something about that word. Today we, we would regard that word as wildly archaic and, and probably offensive, but in the 19th century West, even people who were uh, kind to the Chinese thought nothing of speaking to, about them in ways that we would regard as wildly inappropriate. Even Mr. Twain, who was their champion, would use language like that. And I think part of that with Twain is, is that Twain understood that his readers would be more likely to listen to what he was telling them if he made them laugh sometimes. So his account of going to visit the Chinese is actually hilarious because he's eating things he has no idea what he's eating. And he, he thinks it might be the corpse of a mouse. But he, nevertheless, when you get done reading this, you think to yourself, this is a guy who is in the corner of the, of the Chinese. The, somebody who has no one to talk for them, no one to speak for them, they've got Mark Twain. If you were to read the Portland Oregonian, which is a newspaper that's still in business and has fabulous accounts of this, you would, you would have the same reaction. It makes no sense. On one page, they're entertaining the readers by saying, you won't believe what the Chinese are up to this week. And on the next page, they say many things that we would regard as laudatory to them. Um, I, I do think that the Chinese, to a great degree, remain very mysterious and inaccessible to people. And a lot of that had to do with language. Most of those old guys I was talking about who came down out of the mountains in, in, in the 1920s and 30s, even after 50 and 60 years of living in this country, they didn't speak any English. So their ability to communicate with, with non-Chinese was, sort of, was sort of limited. But yeah, there's all kinds of accounts like that. Well, huge factor. This, our story takes place after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. The Transcontinental Railroad was the reason that there were huge numbers of Chinese in the country, and it was the reason that there were a lot of Chinese in the country who were wandering around looking for something to do, because the railroads, once completed, flooded the job market, and that's where, you were talking about the Irish, that's where, they were, the Irish were big anti-Chinese. The Chinese must go movement began to to agitate in San Francisco in particular. Organized labor, very anti-Chinese. There were horrific incidents of, 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 of uh, uh, violence against the Chinese. Just to give you a couple of quick examples, in the town of Rock Springs, Wyoming, things got so wild that the governor of Wyoming, it wasn't a, it wasn't a state then, told the president, told the White House, I can't control the citizens there. They had killed more than 40 Chinese miners in a labor dispute. In, on the Salmon River, there were two dozen or more Chinese miners killed. No one was ever prosecuted. No one was ever prosecuted for the lynchings at Pierce City. So there were lots of these things. And I saw a file in the Nevada archives that said, uh, instances of tar and feathering of Chinamen. And I, I, you almost don't even need to open the file. When you, when you look at the, the, the slug on that, you think to yourself, whoa. That's, it was that kind of a place. They regarded themselves as coming here from the very earliest days of making a grub stake and going home. That's not overstated. Um, there were more Chinese likely to remain in the country in California for the very obvious reason where they had, where there were more Chinese, more Chinese were comfortable because they had the, the companionship and the support of Chinese, but, but you didn't find Chinese scattered out in large numbers around the countryside. And you, I, I'm, I'm going to go way out on the ice here, but you, you don't often, other than the West, the far West, you don't often meet Chinese Americans whose kinsmen go way back to what they call the days of the Argonauts, which was the, the term that they used for the pioneers in the gold rush days. You don't meet a lot of those people. I often was very disappointed that the people who talked to her didn't ask her more questions. I was sort of like, I'd be reading this and I'd say, Jesus, why didn't you ask her some more questions? I would have asked you some more questions. You know, you've gone to the trouble of finding this person in the middle of nowhere. And Sissy Patterson, who I know there's some journalists in the room, Sissy Patterson was a, an iconic journalist and 
but she was a lousy reporter. <laughs> and she's telling us all about her English riding boots and all the other expensive stuff she has on her trip. And I'm saying to myself, why couldn't we have a little more information about this, you know? It's, what, doesn't that seem like a reasonable thing to you? Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, I, I would, I'm often, was often disappointed about that, and I was often disappointed in the quality of the reporting in the, in the Idaho Statesman and the Lewiston Tribune and some of those newspapers because in those days they didn't always tell you the things that we would, we would you know, we routinely tell you now. There's all this stuff that... But I also had some... Gra I, I'll shut up here, but I had some great moments where... Somebody told me there was an old mining engineer named George Bancroft. He was in the book. He was a fabled mining engineer in the West. You could hire him, and he'd come and look at your mine and say, yes, we can make some money. Or he'd tell you no. And he was up in the middle of nowhere in Idaho, and he met Polly. And I'd heard about this, but I'd never seen anything written down. And somebody told me that his daughter, Caroline, who's deceased too, had been an historian in Colorado, and I contacted the Denver Public Library, which has a great archive of Western Arcana, and they said, yes, they had Caroline's papers. And I said, do you have a reading guide? That's like an index. It tells you what's in the things. It's sort of like a you know, table of contents. It's like a menu. So they sent me the thing, and I'm looking through it. Da, da, da. And there's George's papers. George, you know, it's just a, like a shoebox full of junk. And among George's papers, it says, my memories of China Polly. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I got, and this was 3,000 words of this guy, and he isn't some barfly or nutcase telling a story 25 years after the fact or whatever. He's somebody who actually knew this old gal. So that was great. It was great. Many of these people's stories often contradicted one another, but, you know, they say that when you cross the Missouri River, that happens. <laughs> Listen, I thank you very much for kindly coming out to see me.